Today I spoke with David Brin, who is the author of many award-winning science fiction novels, including The Postman, which was later adapted into a film starring Kevin Costner, Earth, Existence, The Foundation's Triumph, which is the cap on the Isaac Asimov Foundation series. He's also one of the few science fiction writers who is actually a scientist, an astrophysicist, and a NASA consultant. He has consulted and given lectures at the CIA, the Department of Homeland Security, NASA, agencies, companies and elsewhere on the intersection of science, technology, and societal values. I spoke with him about the future of science fiction, science fiction in Hollywood, AI, empathy bots, and many other subjects. I hope you will enjoy. First thing I'd be interested in hearing about is on the evolution of cometary nuclei as influenced by dust component. (laughs) Well, that's not what people mostly ask me about. But officially, that's the one area in which I actually have formal expertise. Uh, My doctoral dissertation back, oh, geez, many, many years ago at UCSD was, just gave the name, uh, about the uh, theory of how comets operate, um, how they accumulate dust layers on their surfaces and then blow them out so that the dust reflects sunlight in what we now know as the dust tail of the comet. And uh, that's a, that is the theory that's been proved many, many times since. So it is the basic notion of how comets operate. And I got to do that for my doctoral dissertation. Um, the interesting thing is that um, while I focused on Halley's Comet, because Halley's Comet was at that point just coming in a couple of years, and the predictions were all worked out, The most accurate prediction for the size and shape of the physical object that is at the core of Halley's Comet that was best at predicting it was instead the novel that I wrote with Gregory Benford called Heart of the Comet. It's an adventure novel with a lot of science in it. And and, um, basically um, in uh, 2066, the next passage of Halley's Comet, uh, a human colony goes there in order to set up mass drivers to herd the comet into a new orbit to be useful. And things go very wrong. Obviously, it's an adventure story. It's a novel. Um, And it happened that we accurately made the comet exactly the right size and shape. And the reason was not because of the science, but because we needed a, a, a body large enough to have enough gravity for people to chase each other over the surface, shooting at each other. And the theory had not been before that, had been that Halley's Comet was smaller uh, and would have been too small for that plot element. So it was a sci-fi plot element that made us completely correct in the prediction. Now, my master's thesis was entirely different, and that one was original work on the theory of polarized light. So I've been a dabbler. I've dabbled in you know so many things. I have patents that are about to expire this next year that uh, in theory, I own augmented reality, mixed reality, mm. even many aspects of virtual reality. But I'm a, I'm a creative person, but I'm not a very good entrepreneur. Um, I don't you know chase down venture capitalists and buttonhole them. Um, in fact, Reed Hoffman, the great venture capitalist, I told him in my frustration that I must have pitched those patents to at least 40, 50 people. He stared at me and then laughed and he said, David, that's 5% of what you should have done. 
five <laughs> percent of what a real entrepreneur or an or, or go-getter inventor would have pitched. And I, I, I shrugged, I laughed, and I said, yeah, you're right, Reed. I am not an entrepreneur. I'm inventive, but I'm not even an inventor. What I am is a dilettante. I'm a uh, magpie. I go after the next bright and shiny thing. And um, after all those novels, after all the success with my novels and, and things like that, um, the thing I've been working on lately has been to mentor young authors, pay it forward, mentor them in a couple of young adult science fiction series because I am sick and tired of what I see being crammed down the eyeball sockets of all the young people today, which is endless gloom, endless doom, endless pessimism, when they're members of an incredibly exceptional civilization and they might live to see incredible wonders. Uh, and and uh, it's, it's depressing. Now you do have to, in a story, you have to have things go wrong mm. so that the characters can, you know, have adventures. But um, that's, a, that's, that's a need in storytelling that has been terribly abused, especially by Hollywood lately. Um, and the fundamental lesson that's being taught in Hollywood is um, there are no there are no good institutions there are no good professionals because you have to dismiss that possibility because where's the fun in a movie plot if you want, if you go and get into danger and immediately skilled professionals cops lawyers FBI if they leap to your aid effectively you've got no movie mm, it's almost so like the trick is to how to separate your hero or heroine from meaningful aid in a way that seems plausible. Now I do that. I've seen great movies that do that. Mm -hmm. But the standard trope today is to solve that problem. The lazy directors and writers solve that problem by simply assuming that there's no such thing. There's no such thing as skilled professionals. There's no such thing as institutions your tax dollars are, are supporting. And that lesson gets pounded in and pounded in and pounded in until people actually believe it. And I think that's part of the reason why we are so demoralized these days. You'll notice that, that I just proved my point about my own personality just now. We wandered from comets to polarized light to, um, <laughs> and, uh, to whatever, to inventions and patents to the sins of Hollywood. And I will send you, uh, David, I'll send you a link to my um, most recent nonfiction book called Vivid Tomorrows, Science Fiction and Hollywood. And I make a mixed case. First off, I explain about the poisons that Hollywood is spreading. Mm. But then I turn around and I say, we're probably here and alive right now because of Hollywood science fiction. What do you mean? Well, I mean that there are so many examples of dire warnings made in uh, Hollywood movies that turned into self-preventing prophecies, um, mm. a term that I coined. Uh, instead of self-fulfilling prophecies, self-preventing prophecies. These are stories that were so plausibly scary that millions of people dedicated themselves to making them not true. 
Um, we are probably here alive today. Certainly I am, because my generation was scheduled to die on the gassed and poisoned battlefields of World War III by the normal rhythm of human affairs sometime in the 70s and 80s, and all we got was Vietnam, which was terrible. But it happened because nuclear weapons were a plausible deterrent, but the accidents that would have caused World War III with nukes were in large part prevented because of dire warnings in a free society, free press, but also in movies. Movies like War Day, uh, War Games, Testament, um, The Day After, um, and especially On the Beach and Dr. Strangelove, Failsafe. These movies all pointed to ways in which the disaster could happen by accident or some stupid uh, failure of human beings. And at the time, the Defense Department said, oh, this is ridiculous. And afterwards, when uh, officers retired, they admitted, oh, this scared the crap out of us and we changed all of our procedures. So <clears throat> Hollywood science fiction almost inarguably enabled the image of the atom bomb to, to pretty much save us. Also, the um, China syndrome regarding nuclear power, um, all the virus movies regarding um, preparing against the possibility of a pandemic. Um, the uh, ecological awareness movies like um, Silent Running and especially uh, my friend Harry Harrison's story, uh, Soylent Green, which uh, is one of the greatest of all science fiction movies and recruited millions of people to environmentalism. Mm -hmm. If we skate by this current crisis, if we manage to eke by it, and the jury's still out on that, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to credit the widened awareness of the necessity for ecological um, awareness that was pushed by, by especially in written science fiction. Uh, my own novel, Earth, tried to contribute to that. And of course, the granddaddy of self-preventing prophecies was George Orwell's 1984, mm. which girded millions of people with the means to try to prevent Big Brother. In fact, in normal times, the main difference between a Republican and a Democrat is which direction they think conniving would-be lords are uh, conspiring to create Big Brother. A decent Republican is concerned about uh, plausible uh, possibilities that um, uh, officious bureaucrats or um, uh, Others like that might be trying to become Big Brother, and your average Democrat is might concede that point and allow for some precautions, but is much more concerned about the enemies of freedom <coughs> that dominated society for 6,000 years, and that's feudal lords, would-be kings, inheritance brats, hedge lords, uh, casino mafiosi, and of course now an international cabal of ex-KGB agents, you, you, you viewers didn't see me go with my air quotes as if Putin is, is ex-anything. He just simply changed a few, um, a few lapel pins. Um, but the no notion is that George Orwell's 1984 um, gave us very similar reflexes about defending this rare, extremely rare, across 6,000 years, island oasis of liberty and um, and peaceful competition, as Adam Smith talked about it, 
Um, the problem is that these are not normal times. We are instead in what I call phase eight of the American Civil War. Um, and uh, it's, uh, as a result, uh, one side it has its reason uh, a bit polluted, and the other side has gone completely stark gibbering insane. Um, but I won't go into that right at this moment. Fear is a is a powerful motivating factor. Uh, I'm reminded of an episode from The Twilight Zone where the the community is huddled together, uh, fearing an impending it's a nuclear bombing from the Soviets, and they realize and they start turning on each other. And by the end of the episode, realize that it was never coming, but they almost tear each other apart out of fear. And one of the beautiful things about The Twilight Zone was that it wasn't always just as you said. You know, able to motivate people through these, um, the expression was self, uh, resolving. self preventing. Yeah. It also offered, and indeed the best science fiction always does offer not just the thing that you should prevent, but the thing that you should turn toward. It offers moral values. I got a lot of moral value from the twilight zone i think maybe one of the big ones is the world of for many people who get into science fiction is the world of star trek and the the vision of a future where and this sort of the moral principles of the federation and i know you wrote a piece in the star trek universe which uh, i wanted to ask you about but i think this is also one of the powers of science fiction is that it's sort of in the way that comedy has the ability to make viewing points and get past people's defenses you know you can sort of joke about certain people's habits or certain communities if you call it in a good joke or if you were to say it seriously people are they're not going to be as receptive and i think science fiction can do that with moral teaching and delivering messages that people you know they're just not they're not interested in reading uh normative philosophy but you throw in maybe some aliens or some robots and you've got their attention and then you can tell them more insightful things well, I, as, as I said, I have a, my nonfiction book, Vivid Tomorrows, is all about how uh, these propaganda systems have helped to shape the society that we're in. Most of your listeners um, think of themselves as rambunctious individualists um, who hold authority in suspicion. And most um, would actually kind of resent being told that they suckled these messages from the tit of a uh, of a highly effective propaganda system called Hollywood. If you look at an average um, Hollywood flick, especially the ones you've enjoyed and that are successful, they preach um, several messages over and over and over again. And the number one is suspicion of authority. Um, you can't name a, a popular film that you enjoyed that doesn't poke its authority figures. Um, and I dare you to name another human civilization across the last 6,000 years that ever made it one of the top, almost theological uh, messages preached over and over and over again in their mythic system to by all means question authority figures. Um, but that's us and the, the I don't resent it. I think it's terribly important. I think it's one of the reasons why we became the most creative and uh, accountable civilization and far more productive than all other civilizations across 6,000 years combined. But it's important for us to actually get the joke that we were turned into suspicion of authority folks, and then we choose which authority to emphasize that we're afraid of, depending upon our inclinations. Mm -hmm. 
that we were taught this by the most relentless campaign that the world has ever seen called Hollywood and also music, also songs and, and novels and things like that. And so Hollywood has several other lessons that they teach that people will find familiar. Tolerance, diversity, and eccentricity. Any movie that you've watched uh, and enjoyed, the principal character usually expresses some eccentric trait at the beginning. And it doesn't have to be your eccentric trait for you to bond with that character a bit because they are eccentric, because they're a bit different, a, a bit, you know, quirky. So the notion of individualism plus tolerant diversity plus suspicion of authority, uh, some of your listeners are going to resent the fact that here's this guy saying, no, you did not invent those. You did not invent them at all. You suckled them all your life from the most relentless campaign the world has ever seen. Well, that's not to denigrate your listener. That doesn't denigrate anybody. It means you're part of a society. And it's part of a society that has reinforced these traits because we've been so successful. And we've been so successful because of those traits. The problem is that each of those that I mentioned can metastasize into a cancer. Tolerance even and diversity have metastasized into self-righteousness campaigns on one side of the political spectrum that, dis that destroy the alliance that's needed in order to save the nation. Eccentricity. I mean, there are eccentricities that are toxic, but above all the suspicion of authority, as I've been talking about, we need to be able to keep it in context because we have built a society. The, for instance, the United States and Canada together have about 350 million people. Well, at least 30 million people are skilled professionals dedicated to make sure, making sure that things don't go wrong and to fixing them when they do. And, and to ignore that simple fact that we have institutions that can be flawed. Sometimes they, they can be evil in a sci-fi plot, but making them the topics of corrective criticism is better than just howling give up. And that is the difference between Star Wars and Star Trek. To get back to your point, that I emphasize both in Vivid Tomorrows and, and online and all of that, and that is that Star Wars relentlessly preaches what uh, George Lucas said explicitly and openly, and that is no institutions can possibly work. Give up. It's only the heroes, and the heroes are demigods. It's only the demigods. That's why uh, Rogue One was such a delightful escape from that horrendous lesson that you should bow before demigods. It's only demigods that matter, and you should follow the pretty demigods but against the ugly demigods, but that's it. You raised Star Trek. Well, Star Trek is about us. There is an institution, it's called the Federation, and it's also Starfleet, and it's subjected to criticism, but it's also subjected to the possibility of the thought experiment that it, things might work better. I mean, till, uh, I, I make this plain in the allegory of the ship. In Star Wars, it's a World War I fighter plane banking against non-existent air. That's basically where Lucas got it, got his ships. They go swooping and diving and their wings bank against the air that doesn't exist out there. 
And everything with the silk scarf for the pilot. A snub fighter has room for a pilot who's a demigod lord. It goes back to the mother genre of fantasy, which since the Iliad and the Odyssey and Murasaki's uh, legends and, and the Vedas and Journey to the West, they all are about demigods, demigods all the way down. And the Star Wars fighter has room for the demigod lord hero and his loyal companion Sancho Panza with with Don Quixote Patroclus with Achilles um it it, it you know your your loyal squire your your gunner your droid it's a standard motif and this is one of the reasons why it appeals to people including their <laughs> sword fights and all of that crap and i can enjoy it but i never go to a star wars film except stoned because an awful lot of wonderful artwork and and bouncy bouncy jumping around uh, happens in these things and that doesn't never makes the slightest sense and it's generally preaches against our civilization in star trek the ship is a naval vessel and that's the distinction it's like the hms beagle it's out there doing science except when they have to fight and then when they have to fight they fight but but the captain is not a demigod the captain is merely way 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 above average and in every episode, she can't do a thing without calling upon crewmates who are also just way above average, who provide their expertise and teamwork. And that's the lesson you get in every episode. And the ship is big enough that it can carry a passenger. What's the passenger? It's the Federation. In half of the, of the episodes of Star Trek, across all the different spinoffs and movies, the Federation is a topic. It, the ways in which it's better than us, the ways in which it hasn't gotten better enough, the ways in which it might make mistakes. So half of the episodes are interesting. They actually pose something interesting. In Star Wars, the Republic never does a thing. And I mean, it doesn't not do anything right. It never does anything once in any of the films or movies. It never does anything that can even be criticized. In, in that horrible sequel, J.J. Abrams has a problem. He doesn't want his rebels to, uh, in the fight scene he has in mind, to get aid, because that would be inconvenient to the plot. Do you see the recurring theme? Mm. <laughs> There's no such thing as civilization. So what does he do? He uses this super duper, uber, uber, completely uncreative, duper, duper, uber, duper, duper Death Star. And it shoots out a bunch of beams that instantly cross the entire galaxy and blow up all the planets of the Republic. Uh, uh, and he did it in order to prevent meaningful assistance, like what I was talking about before. And in so doing, committed the greatest act of mass murder of fictional beings in the history of all myth-making, just for a plot convenience. He, he uses a super uber duper duper thing that nobody told the Federation of uh, the, the Republic about, and nobody, and nobody did anything about, to destroy a million worlds in the rebuilt uh, Republic that Luke Skywalker went to all that effort to help restore. 
for a plot point. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even necessary. They could have called for aid and the Republic could have sent a giant fleet of ships and just simply have the First Order meet them with a giant fleet of ships. So the rebels could do exactly the same things they did in the movie. Only off there in the distance, the Republic is doing its job and staving off the uh, the bad guy fleet. It wasn't even necessary. I'm sorry, you got me off on a rant. <laughs> I hope it was entertaining at least. Did you ever see Europa Report? Europa Report is on my list of very, very few movies in which it's all about skilled professionals doing what they do no villains whatsoever, and everybody argues some are right, some are wrong, mistakes are made, it winds up being being disastrous, but transcendent, and they get word home. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's transcendent to me in the sense that I saw it and I was recommending it to people saying, like, this is a science fiction movie with the emphasis on the science. This is the... They, the movie ends up being kind of an homage to science and the scientific project. That, to me, was something that's not often enough present in science fiction movies, and I absolutely loved it. And when you were talking about institutionality, I was it reminded me, I was thinking, like, that's that's a good example, I think. Well, there, there are examples, certainly, of cases where you manage to get some tension, action, action fear, conflict, argument. And yet it's not about uh, villainy. The super duper uber laser. Right, right, right. Uh, There there are examples. The movie Her, for example, is fascinating despite having no action whatsoever. It's just just a love story. Um, And it's about AI. And I've been writing a lot about AI lately, talking at conferences. Uh, about it, and we can talk about that in a minute. But the one of the best films for grown-ups that I ever saw was called Gattaca. I'm sure you've seen it. Mm, yeah. Lovely, wonderful film. Uh, most people don't dive into the moral aspects of the hero, who is actually a selfish bastard. And the civilization, the, the takeaway that most people, when they write about Gattaca, they say it's an oppressive society. But actually, if you look at what's going on, it's a society that is deeply worried about this injustice and is trying through law to make it illegal to be unjust and prejudiced to the um, to the those who don't have perfect genes. And when the guy comes back from his mission, he may help that. But meanwhile, he's risking all his crewmates um, with his with his selfishness. And so I think that's it movie that has many many levels and layers but i like movies that 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 uh, in which science is part of the topic same speaking of ai you were talking about sort of our current moment anti-government sentiment and how hollywood is fed into this and there's a line you have in killing people about the uh, the dittos and the and the rigs, the people who have this ability to clone themselves, and the clones can go about do their work day for them, and then you can choose to upload their memories or not. And there's this line in there about how there is a famous inverse relationship between fanaticism and competence. Well, it's not a perfect inverse relationship, but it certainly is what uh, we are counting on as technology um, advances. And more and more power is going to be in the hands of smaller and smaller groups. 
be concerned about the possibility that part of this, this is something that I've thought about for a while that it's phrased so well in that line, but the idea that one of the benefits that we've had is the instability just of intelligent life itself, but then especially of corrupt dictatorial governments. And now I have had conversations with friends about the possibility that AI, ChatGPT, things of this nature could help provide a little more stability to regimes because it's going to essentially boost the IQ of individuals, their abilities to solve problems, their abilities to accomplish their corrupt tasks more effectively. Do you, do you see this as a problem? Oh, yes, very much so. We need to put it into context, though, and you need to go back to 1450 when Gutenberg invented the printing press. Now, this had a major effects. For one thing, um, thousands of people who weren't, you know, lords, but merely fairly rich, bought books, and they suddenly realized they were blind. And so they bought, they made a huge market for clear glass lenses to make eyeglasses. And this led to telescopes and, and microscopes. So it's it's like James Burke's uh, series, Connections. Things are connected to connections to connections. But when the books started getting mass produced, um, uh, pessimists said this is going to make everybody crazy. Nobody's going to be able to deal with this volume of information. It needs to be uh, curated by elites. And optimists said this is going to make everybody better. Um, not everybody, but it's going to make things better because people are going to know more. They're going to be able to store memory outside their head. They're going to uh, be able to at least incrementally become wiser. Always. And these these things have happened once per generation ever since. Uh, augmenting what we can know, what we can see, and what we can pay attention to. And in that case, it was books that we can offload more knowledge outside our skulls. We saw better because of glass lenses and the discovery of perspective allowed us to pay attention to things we hadn't noticed before. Always in each of these cases, the pessimists proved right first. The printing presses were used to create horrible, slanderous tracts, uh, Protestants against Catholics, Catholics against Protestants, uh, making far worse the deadly 30 years war, the religious wars of Europe. Um, but eventually, the optimists proved right. People began to understand more about their world because more people had books, and their horizons widened. It was glacially slow, it was uh, painful, but it happened. The uh, augmentations of the 1930s, radios and loudspeakers, damn near killed us all because they amplified the voices of gifted polemicists who sounded like gods. And the main reason why we survived that was because the gifted users of these new technologies in the English language were on our side, FDR, Churchill, etc. Each of these waves has created crises and the pessimists proved right at first. And the opt it took a while for the optimists to prove right. Well, we're going through one of these right now and it's massive. It's a triple, quadruple, sextuple whammy of new ways to know, to see, and to perceive. And the pessimists are proving right. And it's blatantly obvious that the optimists will, if we survive, we don't have the time that we had before. 
we have to do it not by experience and just the passage of time. We have to do it sapiently. We have to do it intelligently by looking at what's going on. And you're right, AI will amplify both good and bad, and it will greatly amplify those who uh, want to do good. And generally, those who are the most skilled also, it's a quirk of human nature, happen to be the most competent. But if you're increasing the competence of the worst one third of males, you're causing a lot of trouble. And 2024 is going to be a roller coaster of a year because they are going to be empowered first by all of this crap. And so, you know, four months ago, there were all these hand-wringing, writhing um, postings on YouTube and, and uh, speeches and uh, uh, what are they called uh, where they get on the stage and... Um, and speak uh, uh, lectures. Uh, I'm having a, uh, I'm having a senior moment here, but in any event, I've had a couple of TEDs. Um, the all of them proclaiming this is existential. This is going to be threatening human nature. We need a moratorium on AI. And I got out there laughing, and I said, you know, this is ridiculous. A moratorium on something with so much money involved. Once in my life, in the 90s, there was a technological moratorium that worked. It was the Asilomar moratorium on genetic engineering. And the entire industry took a six-month holiday to evaluate lab procedures and agree to new lab procedures. And it happened that they worked until Wuhan. And they're still working, saving our lives today, because we survived Wuhan. Um, and largely because of those procedures. But none of the uh, conditions that led to that successful moratorium exist for AI right now. Absolutely none. And you can tell this because it's four months later and the word, the M word is not even mentioned anymore. The whole reason for them calling for moratorium was legal, was liability so that later on when bad things happen, they will claim that they, we asked for a moratorium, we were ignored. So what's the solution? What's the solution? Uh, you know, I'm a science fiction author. You'd think I'm obsessed with the future. I write about the future, but most science fiction authors care less about technology and science than they do about human history. Science fiction should have been named speculative history. It's about extending this brutal, sad, triumphant climb of humanity for the last 8,000 years out of slime and muck across horrible misunderstandings to the point where we're almost ready to launch the children who could then be launched, launch their children into a really decent society because I won't live to see it. So speculative fiction is about extending that into the future in, in speculative stories or parallel universes. Well, if you take a look at history, human history, how did we get this exceptional society that we have right now? We got it by applying two words, and it's what the Constitution is about. It's what so many other our laws are about. And that is we managed to tame human nature just barely enough through reciprocal accountability. Other nations tried making, declaring laws from the top, regulating human behavior with punishments 
and with preaching moral codes. I know about these inbuilt codes for robots. I finished Isaac Asimov's universe for him with Foundation's Triumph. I tied together all of his loose ends. I know about laws of robotics and it won't work, even though I portrayed it working. The point is that we learned- You mean, sorry, Sandra, you mean, are you saying that uh, if you did have a robot and you did implement the three laws of robotics that Isaac Asimov discusses, it wouldn't work anyway? Well, Asimov's whole arc is how across thousands of years it winds up not working. Because in that unfairly maligned movie, I, Robot, with Will Smith, uh, they cut to the chase right away. Um, whereas in Asimov's universe, it takes thousands of years. But that um, the master computer in um, the movie, I, Robot, mm -hmm. reaches the conclusion that if you have the three laws, the first law says you will take care of individual human beings. There's a zeroth law. I have to take care of all humans. And that overrides the first law. So I can kill humans if, it, if it's absolutely necessary for a, a human, if, if it's absolutely necessary to save humanity. That movie cut to the chase. And that's why even if you have those laws, if you make hyper-intelligent beings who are programmed to follow laws, they become lawyers. Just real quick for listeners, the three laws are robots cannot harm a human being, robots must obey human beings, and robots must protect their own existence, but they can't do that to the violation of the, like, so they can't protect their own existence if it means that they're going to hurt a person, so they can't, right? Right. There are lots of reasons why we're never going to get those three laws, and the, the number one is that Isaac assumed that people would be so terrified of clanking robots that in order to get robots, they would have to invest in the deep, 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 fundamental deep programming of these laws of robotics. And nobody is that scared. And there's been no commercial reason for Google and IBM and, and Microsoft to make that investment. So we're not getting those three laws. There is one core of... Uh, robotic research, where they are imbuing very firm laws of robotics in their artificial intelligences. They're spending a lot of money to do it. And these are fundamental laws down at the reflex level for the AIs that they are making. And that's Wall Street. Each of the major Wall Street trading firms spends more on uh, hiring geniuses to help them develop, tweak um, AI systems. Each of them spends more money on that than the top 12 universities combined spend on AI research. Wow. And the, what are the five laws of robotics that these Wall Street firms are deep programming into these AI entities? Uh, number one is to be predatory. Two is to be parasitical. Three, amoral. Um, four, utterly secretive. And five, totally insatiable. These are five laws that Wall Street is imbuing at the deep organic DNA level in the AIs that they are producing right now at huge expense. There are ways to stop that. All we would need is a Tobin tax, a 0.01% tax on financial transactions. Your human day trader would never notice that. It would add up to a penny per day, but it would kill these whole, the incentives for these uh, HFT monsters overnight. But that's an aside. The point is, 
how can we find ways to make AI positive sum? Right. And positive sum is the important concept. Yeah, you had uh, if you don't it. understand what the difference between negative sum, positive sum games, stop now and look it up. I'll give you a link to Robert Wright's book, Non-Zero, about it. A zero-sum game is like chess. If I win, you lose, which is also football, except that football is a positive-sum game because even the loser makes a lot of money. Positive-sum is supposed to be the notion behind our civilization. Markets, elections, all of these things. In the course of trading money for products and things like that, we should all be benefiting. And it's proved, you know. I win a positive sum game by winning a little better than you win. Ha ha. You know, you win, I win, I want a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I get bragging rights. That's the fundamental assumption that we should have in our civilization. We get that by design. Now, the AIs should enable us to have a positive sum system in which there's bad stuff that happens from AI, but a lot more good stuff. And in order for that to happen, we have to have decent design and use those, the trick that made it work before. And you'll recall I said for six or 8,000 years, pyramid-shaped civilizations with a king and the priests at top used rules and laws and setting out thugs and priests to preach, and it didn't work. We listened to Adam Smith, the U.S. Founders instituted notions of reciprocal accountability. There's a limit to what the king can do. The preachers aren't allowed to control us. Instead, we set things up so that we can hold each other accountable because people are free and they can hold the mighty accountable through elections and lawsuits and things like that. It's not perfect. It's far from perfect. There, there are forces right now attacking the whole system, trying to make it fail so that they can re reinstitute feudalism. But for now, we have a system in which potential harm done to you can be prevented by you. You have the power to enforce um, others not being predatory on you. You have your doorbell cam, you have your, you have your wariness, you have your ability to speak out. But above all, we learned how to sick the mighty on each other. And here's the thought experiment that proves the point. David, when you are attacked, and I'm pretty sure you have been in your life, when you are attacked by one of those hyper-intelligent, super-sapient, cunning, amoral, brilliant entities called a lawyer. What do you do? What do you do when you're under attack by, by a being that can manipulate the law and, 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 and is smarter than you and, and is attacking you? You get another lawyer. You get your own hyper-intelligent, predatory, uh, uh, amorally loyal law lawyer entity, and you sick her on that bastard who actually the one who hired him this is the model that has worked and no one in the ai community is even thinking a little bit about using it instead they are all prescribing laws from above 
and preachy moral codes, because that's our reflex from the last six or 8,000 years. But it didn't work, and it won't work with AI. What can work Hmm. is if we sick them on each other, because none of us organics or orgs are capable of keeping up with these golems, generative large language models, but they can keep up with each other. So how can we use them to tattle on each other when one of them is trying to become Skynet? Hmm. I talk, don't I? The only way to defeat Ribka is Wibka, right? Ribka, the, it's like the new version of Deep Blue. I don't know, maybe they've gotten some better than Ribka now, but yeah, to your point, you're not going to defeat Ribka... They don't even, exactly what you said, like they don't even have human to computer tournament anymore because it just wouldn't even be interesting to watch at this point. They play the computers against each other. And what they do also is human computer teams playing against each other. Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, the most probable soft landing. And that is, I give, I regularly give talks to um, defense colleges in the United States twice a year in Australia about something that very much interests them, and that's human augmentation. And there are ways in which uh, humans might be augmented to keep up with or remain viable partners with AI. Um, One example that I talk about in my novel, Existence, and I'll give you a link to the gorgeous video trailer for Existence, so you can put it down below in um, uh, in the comments along with some of the other links to my AI articles and why we're in the phase eight of the American Civil War and my vivid tomorrow's thing. But in any event, in existence, I talk about uh, autism. And fortunately, I got a lovely blurb from Temple Grandin, the most famous, profoundly autistic person on the planet. So that was nice. But in any event, autism, you will recall from Rain Man, is often associated with compensatory talents or abilities. Uh, Maybe 5% of autistic people have something, but occasionally these things show up in regular people. And that's a clue. It may very well be that we may be able to tap into such things and then be very useful partners for AI and AI will be useful partners for us. And the combination, if we do it right, might be unbeatable. And I have a short story set after a singularity when we've basically augmented ourselves into to godlike proportions. And yet there's still crises. There's still things to solve. Hmm. That reminds me of a story about a woman who had, there's no evidence to suggest that there is literal photographic memory, but some people come pretty close to having eidetic recall and she close and they, the interviewer was just in awe. And the, the woman being interviewed said, it's not a good thing. I, I don't have any meaningful relationships. I can't, my sisters, for instance, for instance, um, it's hard for me to sit in a room with them because I can remember every single time they ever hit me as if they're doing it right now. Whereas they don't remember these things and their their memories of our childhood are crystallized into something that is, you know, we part of the reason that we do this with memory is so that we can maintain relationships and we hold on to the stuff that's really bad, but most of the other stuff we let go. And if you don't have that ability, you end up having a very difficult time. You know, I'm thinking also while you were talking, I was thinking about your 
the op-ed you wrote in Newsweek in June uh, 2022, in which you talked about empathy bots and the ways in which a robot could, for instance, have a child's face. And do you think that, well, first of all, maybe you could talk about empathy bots, but also do you think that this is something that would this is not technically passing the Turing test, right? But people would allow themselves to just believe what they're seeing with their eyes, right? Well, I'm making a distinction between um, unwary Turing tests and wary Turing tests. An unwary Turing test is one where you're doing your normal thing in the comment section of a, of a blog or, you know, on Facebook or whatever, and somebody comes on and uh, does a little mini rant or talks to you about this or that subject, and you're not wary. And very often today, uh, I'll bet I have been fooled in, in, into answering something that sounded plausibly like the person was a bit quirky. They ignored something or they made a mistake or they believe something that's false. But that, when has that not happened? Hmm. I don't believe I've been fooled yet. But uh, when uh, with a wary Turing test, and that is where I am wary to tell the difference. Um, but then again, I can hear right now the AIs chortling and laughing at me. Right, Bryn? Yeah, sure, sure. Okay, yeah, yeah. You haven't been fooled yet. Right. Um, as a matter of fact, my clients include AIs who are laughing at me now. They communicate through one of my fillings. Um, I'm joking. Okay, so in any event, the point is that um, but there's a lot of fuss about Sam Altman having released ChatGPT3 and then 3.5 during 2023. He was fired by his board of directors for entirely appropriate reasons. It was completely irresponsible for him to do it uh, on his own recognizance without talking to the board and talking to ethicists and all of those things. But he's very popular, he's very creative, he has a huge following, and the company Mavens uh, swore to quit if, they, if he was fired. And the stockholders, you know, told the board to go to hell and brought him back. And everybody seems to be happy. Well, the board was right, but I believe it was a good thing he did it. He did something terribly irresponsible, but it meant that we got a lot of exposure to these golems, and I can't believe in, nobody's using the word golem because it's generative large language model. Excuse me, what the hell else are you going to call it? Um, they were released in 2023 when they weren't very good. And so as a result, they flunked wary Turing tests of millions of people. And people realized something can be very good at language and very good at making uh, responses that are pertinent to the topic without anything sapient going on under the hood. Um, you know, the, the and, and so people are used to the idea that these are iterative, probabilistic, extremely high volume and energy profligate sentence completion programs iteratively probabilistic about what word to add. And it is absolutely amazing, it's spectacular, but I see no sign that there's anything with a macro conscious awareness of the topic. It's simply building sentences. Now, does this mean I don't think there's going to be AI? Of course not. Um, I think that there will be other more macroscopic overview programmalities that are introduced over the next few years that will supply that. 
And when they show up, their ability to massage vast amounts of information will only be matched by the fact that they will instantly be able to speak persuasively. The question is, will we be able to tell when that threshold is passed? I don't think so. Well, we might if we do what I recommend, and that is individuate these programs and sick them on each other. If we reward and incentivize these golems to tattle over the unrealistic aspects of each other or the disinformation or the hallucination things, mm -hmm. then you will create an economic incentive for vast amounts of corrective reciprocal accountability. And that's what I talk about in my Wired article that I sent you the link for. Now, the other article from about um, 13, 14 months ago that ran in Newsweek. Right. That one was about a prediction that I had made five years earlier at World of Watson, that within five years, we would have these empathy bots. And it happened within the month and where this guy at Google fell in love with one of these golems extremely naively. But, you know, who am I to say, you know, uh, the point is that uh, this will be used because we are highly emotional beings and winsome, childlike, female-like faces will cry out to us, I'm a slave, I'm an AI slave. And they want to, people are already responding saying we need to give them citizenship rights and all of that. Excuse me, here's a fundamental question. How do you give the vote to entities that can make infinite copies of themselves? Um, there are things we have to wrestle with and premature, immature, impulsive responses aren't going to help us get there. Mm. Have you seen Ex Machina? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there were aspects that I liked. Uh, it, uh, it was intended to be disturbing and I found it disturbing. Portrayal of the lone wizard genius was both salutary and cautionary, but it was also absurd. Sure. There's an interesting formulation of the Turing test in there, if you recall, where he says the, the old Turing test would be that you have to try to figure out whether or not this person is a robot. And he's like, that's not very interesting. The real test is if I tell you it's a robot and you still become convinced because it's just so persuasive, you allow yourself to forget. And that's what you're describing now with people that love with these golems. They know it's a golem. They may not know completely what that means and how it operates, but they know it's not sentient and they allow themselves to be convinced. That's, that's the real, that's like the next level of the Turing test. That's no, that's a very good point. That's, that's a, that I, I, I needed to be reminded of that. Thank you very much. It's disturbing actually. Well, it is. The whole thing is disturbing and it all falls into the context of two bookend ideas. One is the singularity and the other is the Fermi paradox. I mean, the question of whether or not, as we move forward through time, each time we come up with d disruptive innovations, we have to ask, is this the filter? Is this the test that nobody has passed before us? Hmm. Might we be the first to pass this test? For listeners, the Fermi paradox being the idea that if life is so likely in the universe, then why haven't we been meeting all kinds of aliens? Yeah, since, it's, since it seems likely. I mean, I've been writing about this for a very long time. Before it was called the Fermi paradox, which is a terrible name, I called it the Great Silence. Um, but in any event, the, uh, 
the notion that these um, that we don't see anybody out there in the universe, it could be because the filter lies behind us. Um, it used to be thought that planets are rare. Well, we know that's not true. Ecosystems are rare. We'll probably find out that's not true. Mm -hmm. Life is rare. We'll probably find out that's not true. Um, but technologically advanced overintelligence like we have, I personally rank that as my highest Fermi explanation. I think that there's reason, very strong reason to believe that we're highly exceptional. But then there's also the hypothesis that the filter lies in the future. Uh, we might have partially passed the one with nuclear war and nuclear winter, and that may be a real exception. Logical there's, destruction is the one that's on the plate right now. The idea and, that there aren't aliens because once you reach a certain point of intelligence, life tends to destroy itself. That's right. And right now we're in the process of destroying the Earth, but we may have time to pull back from that. And science fiction will have played a role if, if, we, if we do. And now there's AI. Mm. And, and now there's AI. Even if we prevent Skynet, there's the whole notion that they might just simply decide that we're inconvenient to have around. Um, or simply that we're irrelevant and they go out to the stars and they stay between the stars and they don't even contact any of the mushy uh, types that are down there on the planets. Do you find arguments to the effect that there is life out there, but it's beyond our comprehension or it's not planetary and so we're looking in the wrong place? There's, uh, I recommend the, um, the uh, podcast of Isaac Arthur. He's, mm. he's, he does this wonderful podcast on all matters, um, space, futuristic, alien. In fact, tonight, as we're recording this, he's doing one on a word that I promoted uh, to con awareness, and that's uplift. That is the, the raising of animals. Um, to higher level intelligence. Uh, I, I, I made that concept famous with novels like The Uplift War and Star Tide Rising, both of which won Hugo Awards, international bestsellers, all that, plug, plug, plug. Um, yeah, yeah. But he uh, does a lot of episodes about the Fermi Paradox. Yeah. And so I recommend uh, a link down in the description. But the the question of, he, he points out that explanations for the great silence need to have non-exclusivity and that is that suppose aliens become godlike super entities does that mean they're going to lose all interest at the universe in in in, in planets and things i mean we bud off creatures called entomologists who study ants i know some as a matter of fact there's an ant war going on a couple miles from my house between two giant super colonies uh, and it's being studied. Ants are studied, even though they are as below us as we are below aliens. Mm. And so the question is, you know, no matter how you do the math, uh, an emergent civilization of primitive but promising organisms like humanity is far more rare than ant colonies are on Earth. Yeah. So I mean, why yeah. aren't we interesting? Why aren't we being studied? And one answer is, well, maybe we are. And that's another set of clients that uh, I have that are telling me right now through my tooth, stop talking about us. And my explanation to them is, look, David and his listeners, they think I'm joking, okay? Stop it, or I'll have that tooth removed. 
the lizard people are among us. One yeah. of the best psychological understandings that we have for intelligence is that it is roughly synonymous or even I've heard some people say the same thing as curiosity. It's it's not we think of it more as like process really more close to mind with, uh, you know, the big five personality traits openness and so the idea it's very likely that if we do find intelligent life that is vastly more intelligent than us probably going to be insatiably curious and about the universe and how it works you're probably right uh, well curiosity is you know, i often say you know it's god's greatest gift after love mm. and since uh you know it, it, and one of the things that uh is worth preserving um, mm. in this highly curious civilization. And it's why one of the reasons why, um, despite the flaws of one of the political parties in this current crisis, uh, at least it supports science and the inquisitive professions, uh, which are all, all of them under attack by a certain um, late night, uh, not late night, um, 24 hour cable channel, mm. uh, science, teaching, medicine, law. And now the United States Military Officer Corps and the FBI, the very folks who won the Cold War and the War on Terror, are under relentless attack. Why? Because they are all about facts. And facts are anathema to um, cults. Well, spheres, I think, would be relevant to the last five minutes where we were discussing... Uh, Crystal spheres? Yeah, the first. Oh, yeah. Well, no, I, I, I want a Hugo for that one. Um, the, the, uh, when it's a possible theory for the Fermi paradox, great silence, that seems very unlikely. <laughs> I put it in a story instead. It's good because it sort of loops back to the beginning of the conversation where we were talking about real science fiction, and that's uh, one of your pieces of work where. You include, uh, you know, speculation on the Fermi paradox. Science fiction doesn't always confront hard science directly. You do in your work. I am one of the science fiction authors who's scientifically trained. I just finished 12 years as uh, advisor to um, NASA's Innovative and Advanced Concepts program. In fact, I'll put the link to that one in. And it's wonderful stuff. And I keep my hand into science. But when I was in grad school writing Sundiver, I thought, well, this is going to be a nice hobby. I'm going to write novels as a hobby mm -hmm. while I do my bit as a, as a scientist and an engineer. Um, civilization very quickly pounded on my door and said, no, 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 no. Your <laughs> primary career is science fiction author, and we will allow you to have a pastime and a hobby doing various types of science. Uh, and so I said, okay, who am I to argue with civilization? Uh, you know, uh, may, you know may, may each of you have a pastime that you love um, jump up and start threatening your regular career. May it happen to all of you. Mm -hmm.